The sun had already begun to rise on this day, and as he pulls back his silk sheets and gets out of his massive bed, he begins to hear the hustle and bustle of his kingdom. And he gets out thinking today is going to be a day just like any other day, but it's not going to be a day just like any other day. And this all makes his way to the terrace of his palace. He takes a deep breath and takes in his kingdom and he hears the blacksmiths blacksmithing, the carpenters carpentering. The center of town is already beginning to be filled with hustle and bustle of trade. And off in the distance, headed towards the temple, he notices a shadowy figure that he would recognize from a mile away. He recognizes the stature of that donkey on his way. Saul thinks to himself, what's the prophet doing here? At this point, Saul's heard the rumors. The tabloids have begun to spread that a new king has been chosen, a new king has been anointed. Saul begins to think to himself, man, I thought that whole situation with the Amalekites and me not quite doing what I was supposed to do, I thought I got my way out of it. But this time, his tall, handsome, rugged, good looks, his ability to woo a crowd wasn't going to be sufficient. And as he stands there pondering what is true or not, he hears the pitter-patter of some bare feet against his marble base of his kingdom. And the servant walks in and on a silver platter, hands him his morning cappuccino. And as he takes that little tiny mug and puts it up to his lips, and before he takes a sip, he asks the servant, so Samuel's here. Yes, Lord, he replies. Do we know why? We're not sure, but we think the rumors are true. Welcome to week one in our study in the life of David. For seven weeks, we are gearing up to Easter to worship the son of David, which is Jesus. Before we get there, we need to find out who is this David character that we read about all throughout Scripture. One thousand times this man's name is used. That's just a few hundred short of Jesus. That's more than Moses. That's more than Abraham combined that this guy... David is referenced. And David is important. He's a a very popular figure, not just in scripture, but all throughout history. There's a star named after him, the most famous sculpture ever made, albeit the only sculpture I could tell you that exists. And yet there's something different about him. And there's also a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. An entire millennium before the Savior of the world will actually come, but that Savior of the world is referred to as the Son of David. Not the Son of Moses, not the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. And as David's story begins to unfold, we're going to notice it's a story of one kingdom and it begins with two kings battling it out. And chances are, if you grew up going to church, there's some of these Sunday school lessons are going to come rushing back. And my challenge is going to be to all of you who are maybe walking into this series with saying, well, I don't really need to pay attention that much. I know the stories. I've read them. I remember all the coloring pages from back in the day, the flannel graph. If you're old enough to remember one of those, it's a rumor that those existed. That they're not quite the exact moral to the story. You see, we're led to believe that there was two kings. There was good King David and bad King Saul. Don't be like Saul, try to be like David. But as the story unfolds, we're going to see that David, 
He was a way worse person and king than Saul ever was. But why then was David known as a man after God's own heart and not Saul? You see, what we'll see is David's story, David's life is not one to be heralded. It's not one to be mimicked. It is one to be heeded. But we will find a hero in this story. We will discover a king worthy to be worshipped. We will see a savior on display. But chances are it's not quite who we've been led to believe it is up until this point. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. One of the things we said we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to give you just the reference and so you can follow along with us. We're going to cover a lot of ground in our Bibles each and every week. So if you don't own a Bible, please see Guest Central after service. We'd love to give you a Bible. You can download an app. You can bring your own Bible with you. If you're one of those people who likes to read and study and mark your Bible, this is going to be a phenomenal series for you. 1 Samuel is found. It's the ninth book of the Old Testament, ninth book in the Bible. Uh, you just go about maybe like a, a fifth of of the way, look for all the one twos, one two Samuel, one two Kings, one two Chronicles, first Samuel chapter 15. But before we dive into the life of David, we need to learn about this king by the name of Saul, who was on the throne in Israel before David ever assumes his crown. And that's where we start this morning. First Samuel chapter 15, we're picking up in verse 10 to begin. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I'm just going to let you know this phrase, word of the Lord, shows up a bunch. Came to Samuel. He's the prophet. He's the one chosen by God to give God's kind of words to the people, but specifically Saul in this point. The Lord says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul he got up, or went to meet Samuel, got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone up to Carmel, and there he has set up, get this, a monument in his own honor, and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So I just want to pause there real quick. Here's kind of where we are in this story. At this point, Samuel has come to Saul because Saul has broken God's word. And what the, the, the specific context is, is there's this group of people called the Amalekites who had oppressed God's people for, for centuries, for, for years, for decades, for so much time. And God finally said, I've had enough. And so Saul, I want you to take you and your men and just wipe them out from the face of the earth. I just want you to completely eradicate them. And so they go to war, they're victorious, but at the end, some of Saul and his men, they called back just a couple things. Not a whole lot, but just a few things just some of the choice livestock, and the king of the Amalekites, King Agag. But the thing is, is Saul chooses for himself what is right in his own eyes. Saul says, this is how I will build my kingdom. I don't care what the Lord has said to me. Saul chooses selfishness. And this is what enacts Saul's downward spiral as a king. He's a selfish king who establishes a selfish kingdom. And so Samuel has come to Saul on behalf of God to say, bruh, you done messed up. Let me tell you some more. Picking up in verse 13, it says, so when Samuel reached him, Saul said to him, get this, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowering of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, well, the soldiers 
They brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go, completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have not wiped them out. Until you have wiped them out. What then did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on a mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. Three times in this passage here, in these short verses, there's this back and forth, these half-truths provided by Saul. Samuel comes in, and Saul's like, bro, it's great to see you. Bring it in, buddy. The prophet of the Lord come. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We are just so glad that we are two brothers living in the honor of the Lord with our lives, right? How about that battle and that victory I just got? Ah. And Samuel's like, what's that? Oh, that's just some of the leftover sheep and, and, and cattle. You know, just the best ones because we wanted to make a sacrifice. But did the Lord not tell you to get rid of everything? Okay, well, yeah, yeah. But we saved those ones to worship the Lord. Duh, Samuel, you should know that. You're a prophet. But we did everything else. We, we completely obeyed God in every sense of his command ever since then, right? Hey, isn't that King Agad back there? The king of the Amalekites who you were told to destroy? Well, yeah, but like, you know... It was just like one dude. And Samuel says, Saul, you have chosen in your own eyes, in your own heart, what is right and what is good for yourself and your own kingdom. In chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, it gives you the role of a king. And the king was supposed to do three things, fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord. And if they did those three things, then their kingdom would rise and it would be blessed. And if they failed to do one of those three things, their kingdom would fall. It was as simple as that. And this is the weakness in Saul's life. This is the weakness perhaps in our life as well sometimes. Is that thinking we are Lord of our lives is not a good way to lead our life. And in Saul's case, definitely not the kingdom of God either. You see, there is one true king of this life, and it's not you or I. And Saul begins to push back, and he says, but I destroyed most of it. And Samuel says, it's not what the Lord requires. If you're a note taker, you're following notes along with us, here's your first point for this morning, is that partial obedience is never the goal in the kingdom. Almost there, halfway there, 80% of the way there, 90% of the way there. That is never the goal in the kingdom of God. Doing what seems right or feels right is never the goal in God's eyes. I remember, I think it was a ninth grade, and maybe you had one of these tests before, um, in which uh, I think it was an English class, and uh, the teacher gave us this test, and then they said at the top, here's the test, but I'll read all the instructions before you take the test. And I was like, pfft. I don't need instructions. I know what a test is. I've been failing these things for years. What's another one? 
And I began to fill out this task, just flying through. I was like, this is the easiest task I've ever taken in my life. And about 20 minutes in, I see like half the class just get up, take the task, put it on the teacher's desk, and they all leave. I was like, they must be a lot stupider than I am because I ain't halfway done yet and whatever. So I fill out the test, and I finish it feeling good and confident in myself. Like, this is solid C-minus work, got to be. Turn it in. The next day we go to class. And the English teacher is passing everyone's test back. And one of the things that I noticed is that I got my test and it had a big fat zero on the top. And I thought to myself, Eric, you're a lot stupider than you think. <laughs> Come to find out, she actually graded the test and I missed all but like two questions. I was like, why does this say zero? And then I looked to my buddy who didn't fill out a single question. And it has an A-plus circle with the smiley face and stars, 100%, lightning bolts, stickers, candy attached to it. No candy, but that would have been great. And I was like, what's going on here? And he just says, flip it over. Because on the back of the test, in really small font, it said, sign your name here and turn it in without writing anything. And you'll get 100%. The teacher gave us the warning up front. There was instructions at the top of the page. Read all the instructions. Obey everything that I've put here and you will be taken care of. But what did I do? I did what was right in my own eyes and I felt vindicated. I felt justi justified. I got some of it right. This shouldn't be a zero. This should be at least like a B. But no. Because partial obedience, especially when it comes from the word of God, is never the point. So it continues, picking back up in verse 25 this morning. Saul and Samuel, their conversation continues. Saul says to him, and now I beg you, he's talking to Samuel, forgive my sin and come back with me, get this, so that I might worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. If you're a highlighter, circle, underline, star, underline that phrase, neighbor, and then this one, one that is better than you. He who is the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I might worship the Lord your God. Over Saul's kingship, he gets more obsessed with power. He gets more obsessed with his chariots. He gets more obsessed with his palaces. He gets more obsessed with himself and his kingdom and everything that he has gained. Remember when I said that he chose himself over following after God. And what did Saul do? He created a temple for him to be worshipped. And as Saul's lordship went on over the people of Israel, he began to actually think that he truly was Lord he began to think that I am worthy to be worshipped. And let's, let's forget about God. Let's forget about Yahweh. Let's, let's, let's completely not even remember that he is the one who is granting us victory after victory after victory. I'm the one leading the charge. I sit on the throne. I've got the big cushy bed. I've got the crown with the jewels. Follow me. And Samuel says, enough. And you notice what Saul did here. Samuel, just come back with me, please. Why? so that we can worship together in front of my people. I don't want them to get the wrong idea. 
I want them to remember that, that I'm king. You notice what he did there, right? Let me, I'm sorry, God, I've sinned. Come back and worship with me, Samuel, so that the people will continue to follow me. He begins to use God as a bargaining chip for his own kingdom, his own ways, his own desires, what he wants to see happen in his life in what he believes is his kingdom. And do we not sometimes fall into that same trap? Do we not sometimes do religious stuff with the hopes that God will fulfill our dreams or our desires? That when we make some poor choices or we've made a mess of life, then we say, well, okay, well, God, I'll send up a a few prayers. I'll go to church every Sunday for the next two months, and then you're going to come in and fix all of this, right? Because that's what you do. And where Saul gets wrong, and sometimes we believe this lie, is that we can coerce God into making our wildest dreams and hopes come true if we do enough religious stuff. If we do enough churchy stuff, then God will have to come through on our behalf. And this is where it begins to really hit home with Saul. And if I'm being honest, hit home with me. Where does Saul's downfall actually start? We can define it like this. Is that it's one thing to call God Lord. It's a completely different thing to live like it. Eric, I thought this was about David. Why are we spending so much time talking about Saul? Because it's going to be Saul versus David for like the first half of this series. And many of us grew up believing it's Saul versus David, good king versus bad king. Don't be like Saul, be more like David. But as the pages turn... What we're going to notice, and if you've read the stories, you, you, you know this, but you might not, might not remember it, is that, that's, that David's going to make a massive mess of things. He's going to make a way worse mess of his life and his kingdom than Saul ever did. Sure, we're going to read stories about David uh, able to kill bears and lions with his bare hands. Sounds familiar to me, you know, something I do on the regular. Just kidding. He's going to slay giants. He's going to lead armies. He's going to do some amazing things, and he's also going to make some really, really bad and dumb choices. When all is said and done, and if you were to stack what they did and didn't do next to each other, David's list of good things is going to outweigh Saul's good things, but his list of bad things is going to be astronomically larger. You see, the moral of the story of the life of David cannot be for you or I or your children, cannot be more like David. That when I think of the story of David, when I think about my son, my prayer is, Lord, Please help my son to not be like David. Because in David's life, there is deceit. There is rape. There is murder. There's molestation that happens in his family, and he doesn't even have the courage to say something about it. The moral and what we glean from the life of David cannot be and should not be, be more like David. This is a terrible way to live life. But what's the difference then? What's the difference between these two kings. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, I believe, gives us a hint. But what you'll notice is that Saul, early on in his kingship, had to be given a new heart from God, whereas David comes on the scene, we're about to see it in a second, that he already has this heart. You see, David's reign and his life will depict this one truth that we would do well to follow, and it's this, is that there is only one king in the kingdom, And it it ain't me. 
There's only one king in the kingdom of God. It's not me, it's not you. David is going to tirelessly, whenever there's a victory, give it to God, and whenever there's a mistake, to repent. But Saul's problem was saying, I'm king. Where's my temple? Samuel, come back and worship with me so that they will worship me instead. David understands that there is one king, and it's not him. In the kingdom of God, you don't have to have it all together. In the kingdom of God, you don't have to live a perfect life for the Lord to use you. But you need to remember that there is a Lord and you ain't he. Bad grammar, I understand, but it sounds good when it came out of my mouth. That there is someone worthy to be worshipped. And it's not you. There are altars due to an entity who is deserving of our praise. And David is going to say time and time again, I am not he. So cue the dramatic tension music. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, begins like this. And this is how the story of the reign of David begins. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. This was oil was a sign of anointing to establish who the next king was going to be. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Why? Because Saul doesn't want to lose his throne. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord had said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Circle, highlight, underline, star the name Eliab with me for a second. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. And then here in chapter 16, verse 7, you're going to hear this, this phrase, you're going to hear this term thesis, you're going to hear this verse over and over and over again throughout this series. So circle in the margin, write thesis there, do what you got to do to know that this is the point here. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let me just set this scene for you because it's so good. So God says to Samuel, Samuel, we got to go find us a new king because the king we have has just completely blown it. And Samuel's like, okay, but if I go, Saul's going to kill me. He's like, nope, we're going to do a cover-up plan. Get that cow, take it with you. And then where you go, he's just going to think you're doing a normal peace offering. Where do you want me to go? Bethlehem. No, 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 <laughs> God, like where do you want me to go? Bethlehem. That podunk town in the middle of nowhere made up with a bunch of hodad farmers. Sounds familiar to Illinois. You want me to go there? He's like, yeah, go to Bethlehem. So he goes to Bethlehem. So he's like, donk, da donk, donk, da donk, donk, da donk, donk, da donk. Gets to the middle of town. And people are like, whoa, 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 Samuel, what are you doing here? They're like, he never comes here. This is either really, really good news or really, really bad news. We don't know what's going on, but he's here. And so they're like, um, good news or bad news? You come in peace with you? He's like, I got this cow. 
This is good news. And they're like, yeah, we're having ribeyes tonight. Let's eat. Samuel says, so I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. <gasps> wait, whoa, 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 say what? The next king of Israel is coming from the little town of Podunk, Bethlehem. <sighs> what? You have to be kidding me. And everyone begins to talk to themselves, and their mind goes to the one person they thought it would be. Oh, it's going to be Eliab. I mean, and Eliab, dude's a stud. He's hunk. He's tall. He's dark. He's handsome. He's tall. He's handsome. He's dark. He's handsome. He's the captain of the football team. He was prom king and queen because they just know he deserved to have it. He's the fastest. He's the strongest. And Jesse is dad proud of Eliab. And when Jesse goes to the bars to hang out with the other dads, and they're talking about, well, I got more land than you. Well, my livestock are better than yours, blah, blah, blah. And they, well, I got my boy, but they were constantly here, but he's nothing compared to Eliab. Eliab had the whole package. On the outside, he was fit to be king. If there was going to be a king coming from Bethlehem, it's going to be Eliab. And what does God say? Don't do what the world does. It's the tension. Every week in the story of David, you can expect this tension. What's the world see? What's the world want us to do? And what is God's heart and design in this? This is the tension for today, but it's the tension for the whole series. Is that simple verse, chapter 16, verse 7. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the inside. There's immense peril in our impressions. And sometimes God needs to save us from our sins, but oftentimes God needs to also save us from our insufficient saviors. They're looking at the externals, they're looking at what they can see with their eyes, and it's not good enough. And where Israel went wrong is they began to rely on their own strength, on the saviors of what they could touch and feel and produce on their own. And you and I, let's be honest, we need to be saved from our own saviors from time to time. You ever told yourself, my life wouldn't be here in this situation if I just made a little bit more money. I'd be more fulfilled of a human being if I just had the right person at my side. I can't control the curveballs life throws at me, but you know what I can do is I can go to the store, buy a fifth, down it, and at least erase those feelings for an evening. We all need to be saved from our sin. It's the virus that plugs, uh, plagues each and every one of us, but we need to be saved from our saviors often as well too. And that verse that says God doesn't look on the outside but on the inside is the best way to say you've got saviors that you need to sacrifice and hand over. See, this word heart, for us, we think of the happy place of all your emotions and how you're feeling. But in the Hebrew culture, the word heart means more of like your gut, the place where all of your decisions come from. It's your action center. And so when God says, I look at the heart, what he's saying is, I look at why people make the choices they make. It's not your intentions, it's not your desires, and it works both ways. Think about this. The world says, well, let's look at your heart, let's look at your actions. And if you are a flawed person, they say, you're worth nothing. You have nothing to offer anyone or the world around you. You are an utter failure. You should be ashamed of yourself. And when God sees our flaws, he looks inside and sees, I see something worthy. I see something that can be restored and redeemed. And when the world sees our 
accomplishments, our successes. They sing your praises. They want to build pedestals. They want to put you up on them. And God says, but you can't hide from me what I know is going on deep down. And God's going to time and time again through the life of David remind us, I look at something different than the rest of the world. Chapter 16, verse 7, thesis that the secret of the kingdom is our hearts more than anything else. We still haven't even met David yet. Verse 8, last kind of section for us this morning. They don't even put a timer up for me anymore because they just know I won't look at it. It's good. (laughs) Then Jesse called. So we already saw Eliab, right? Wasn't him. So watch what happens next, okay? So then Jesse, David's dad, calls Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending to the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had brought him in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance, and he was handsome in his future. So he was dark and handsome. He just wasn't tall. And the Lord said, rise, anoint him. This is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samuel comes in, he has this consecration service. He invites Jesse and says, one of your sons is about to be king. He's got eight. He only brings seven. And one after one, Jesse probably goes, here's who I think it ought to be, who he's probably most proud of, and goes all the way down the list. And Samuel says, where's the other one? I didn't even bring him. I didn't think he was worthy to be brought and even tag along and experience this with his brothers. And I find it interesting, if you read the life of David, David will never mention the relationship with his father. He'll never talk about the influence his father had in life. The only time he'll reference Jesse is just saying, I come from the family of Jesse. But David will talk powerfully about his relationship with God and his relationship with his mother. I don't want to make too much out of it. But as we get to move on and we see some of the choices David makes, is it because the father figure was absent in his life? Is it because his dad was not proud of him, not even enough to bring him along in the journey? And if you're a father in the room, pay special attention to that. And so they get to this point and and David is anointed. And the only thing we know about him, there's something different about his heart. We'll hear about his external accomplishments. We'll see how he completely sabotages his own life. But from the outset, we don't even know his name. All we know is his heart is in the right direction. As the story of David goes on for the next few chapters, the next few weeks for us, the tables will turn and David will make a complete and utter mess far bigger than Saul ever will. But what's the difference, we must ask Why is David still called a man after God's own heart? Why is he referred to as a king better than Saul? Why is he someone who is defined as the Lord is with him? Chapter 16, verse 7. We will see this point on display that the whole story in life of David is about this point. 
is that a perfect God uses an imperfect person. If you want to know what the story of David's going to be about, it's this. And that should encourage you. That should invigorate you. That should be one of the most inviting things ever because we can take David off the pedestal to see, here's this guy who's got it all together and he slays lions and bears, oh my, and he writes poetry and he wears a tunic and he's super jacked and he's got a statue and take him off that pedestal and say, he's jacked up probably more jacked up than any of us ever will be, and he's still used mightily in the name of God. The big difference between Saul and David, I'll close with this, is that Saul believed God was using him because of what he's done. David will say, God has used me in spite of who I am. The most influential book I've ever read outside of the Bible is a book called A Tale of Three Kings. If you're a reader, you like story, you like narrative, get this book and read it along in this series because what a guy does, his name's Gene Edwards, he takes the story of David and Saul and then Solomon on the back end and creates like a narrative story of the life of David. But he says this in one of the first chapters. He says, what does this world need? Gifted men and women outwardly empowered or individuals who are broken and inwardly transformed. The life of David is gonna take a bunch of broken pieces and decisions and stuff that you and I can relate to. You and I can say, I know what that's like. I understand what he's feeling. I understand that, that temptation and that downfall. I can understand that. And he's gonna take a bunch of broken pieces and create this glorious mosaic. But it's not gonna be a picture of himself. It's going to be a picture of the one true God. Story of David. Imperfect people are always used by a perfect God. That God uses a nobody to tell everybody about somebody. Welcome to the story of David. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Lord. Thank you for your goodness, for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you've done in our lives and you continue to do whether we realize it or not. As we dive into this, this study, this story, into this life of a man after your own heart, may we celebrate with him when he honors you. May we mourn with him when he disobeys you. But may we take these stories, may we take his life as a foreshadowing, as a template, as, as casting the vision to the true Savior of the world, your Son, Jesus, the Savior of the world who is worthy that we sang about this morning, the same Savior of the world that we lift up in praise today. We love you, Lord. We praise you for you and you alone are worthy to have your name sung about and taught about. And we take communion and we give and when we serve, it's not because we are good enough, but because Jesus was good enough on our behalf. May we live in the kingdom of God as people with pure hearts to be obedient to you. Dream that we pray.